what you need to pick from a hundred options. When it's your turn to roll. When your adventuring life gets colorful. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ryu, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Lennon. And I'm Ostron. And this is the 103rd entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, January 11th, and released Wednesday, January 15th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Ostron, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? In this week's Adventurers Pack, Lennon forgets all about maps as he embraces the true beauty of tabletop RPGs, rollable tables. Next, we check out some D&D news as we uncover what you can find in Laurel Silverhand's Explorer's Kit, D&D Beyond's latest digital release, the Sapphire Dragon from the Anniversary Dice Set, and everything we know about the latest source book, The Explorer's Guide to Wildmount. After that, we take a short rest and dig up some Unearthed Mondana for an introduction to colour theory to help with painting your miniatures, before finally heading over to the scrying pool to see what you have to say. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our Adventurers Packs. Do you always carry this picture bag? We're gonna get out of here, we're not gonna need a few things. Name one thing you're gonna need the stupid roll for! So, actually, despite what Ostron said in the intro, I am actually, you know, maps is where it truly lies. But that doesn't mean that I can't appreciate the beauty of a good rollable table. So, people who hang out on Reddit are probably familiar with the subreddit r slash behind the tables and if you're not pause this recording go look it up and then once you've come back six days later after you've dug through all the rollable tables you'll be able to jump onto what our adventurers pack is this week which is a place where they've taken all of the rollable tables from r slash behind the tables and have converted it into a one button click interface to generate practically anything you need and this tool is Auto Roll Tables and can be found at autorolltables.github.io. As always, links will be in the show notes. And what this does is takes those rollable tables and, like I said, puts them in one-click buttons that you can generate pretty much everything that you need. And I know that we do say regularly it can generate whatever you need for lots of things like the Abufla generators and so on. This one really does go all out. There are different levels of rollable tables that you have on here. I know a lot of rollable tables tend to be focused at dungeon masters rather than at players, but this one even has a lot of inspiration for players. So this is genuinely equally applicable no matter which side of the screen you are on. So when you go to the website, you will see that initially there's a strip across the top that has a list of all, which is every rollable table that they have. And then after that, they split into sections such as dungeons, factions, food, magic monsters, NPCs, objects, plots, settlements, vehicles, and wilderness. So let's say you're crafting a dungeon, but you're kind of a little bit stuck on how to describe the dungeon. So just simply go into dungeons and then click dungeon features, and it will use one of the tables from r slash behind the tables to pull out a whole list of information. In this case, it has rolled a d20 on the air currents table to tell us that this dungeon is it's got a wind that is strong and gusting. 
It's also rolled another d20 on the odors table to tell us that as well as a wind that is strong and gusting, it has a dank and moldy smell about it. And this panel that you're looking at then goes on and on and on with all the various different tables that it's rolled on, the type of dice it's rolled. So for example, it's rolled a d100 on any religious articles and furnishings that are around. But basically, you can read this so that I know my dungeon has the following features. It's got a strong wind that is gusting with a dank and moldy smell, but the air is actually clear. There's no poisoning in it. The general features of the dungeon have scratches on the walls, and there is an unexplained sound and a strange noise of squealing. The furnishing and the appointments around the room seem to be quite general. There's not really anything that stands out, but there are a lot of religious articles in the form of lamps that are about the place. There is also a set of tweezers that is currently existing on an altar, and if the players were to look around a bit, they might find a uh, drawer which has got a cape within it. So there you go, that was just pulled up from one random thing called the Dungeon Features Table. They then also have, sticking in the dungeon section, you can have elemental air dungeons, you can have castle rooms, small, medium and larges, mage towers, monasteries, prisons, tombs, temples loads of different types that's just picking a few at random what i really like about auto roll tables though is that a lot of time when you look at the r slash behind the tables you will find that there is a table that they've produced and then there's a sub table and then there's a sub table and then there's a different table and sometimes it's quite hard to collate all that information into a really easily digestible rollable resource so what they've done on auto roll tables is a lot of the time you will find that they will have things, for example, small castle, that will then also have with 2d6 rooms and 4d6 inhabitants. So not only does it actually generate the initial castle, including where the castle sits, who it was built by, it's presently occupied by, blah blah blah, it will then also generate the rooms within the castle, tell you what the chamber is, all the features that you notice, and then it will tell you the NPCs or the inhabitants that are in the castle, such as a boyf or Fletcher, a guard, there's a tutor and a steward in this particular example that I've done. Now I said that this was a resource not only for dungeon masters but also for players, because under the NPC section, you can generate NPCs of virtually any standing at all. So they've got random NPC names, motivations, appearance, like that sort of stuff. But then they also have random guard, random horsemaster, random noblewoman, random servant, uh, random cultist, random elf, and so many hundreds of other random things at all that if you wanted to say play a warlock, but you're struggling to come up with a background for it, then you could just hit the warlock entry on there to generate a random warlock. It'll give you a first name, a surname, where you got your pact powers from, um, the warlock's favourite type of magic, and lots of in-depth information. So if you're struggling to think of something for a story hook, or maybe you kind of got a rough premise but you, you're missing a few key components, roll a few generations on these types of tables and you will have something that you can work with. I have absolutely no doubt about it. So, as normal, whenever we do these sorts of things, we do tell you the you know the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, in this case, I will start with the ugly. I don't think that this website is very well designed, and sometimes it can be a bit weird to try and navigate, especially if you have a table that is doing a role but is intended to be used as more of a Mad Libs format, such as, you walk up to the castle and you see a blank. When you talk to the blank, it says blank. The way that it presents those types just look a bit weird and it just takes a little bit of reading and getting used to. The other thing that is uh, a bit of a, I don't know if downside is really the right word for this, but um, 
all the tables that are on here have come from those behind the scenes uh, Reddit tables, so it does take them a little while to get them updated and brought over. So you might find that if you are a fan of behind the tables, your favorite generators may not be on here yet. Other than that, though, it's a fairly simplistic site that has a lot of generations, a lot of really good background info, and you can go and look at the source tables if you wish to actually roll on them yourselves with a D100 rather than getting the software to do it for you. So the uh, website, once again, is autorolltables.github.io. As always, we will put a link in the show notes to it. So, yeah, Ostron and Ryu. Um, Ostron, I know that you're quite a fan of rollable tables, but I think we also all equally share a love of generators, which this kind of almost branches into the territory of. What are your thoughts on auto roll tables? I overall I like it. Your point about the status of the website itself is well made. It in places it sort of breaks down visually or grammatically. Uh, a lot of these tables are very good for inspiration and have a decent number of different options and things that mesh together to make unique items even if individual elements aren't necessarily that varied like for example um, there's a potions generator and that particular generator has something like 12 to 15 different attributes for each potion that gets generated all of which are based on separate tables that are rolled and some of the labels or some of the attributes don't really change that much from one to another like they've got you know only a certain number of colors for the different potions because a there are only a certain number of colors that actually exist in the physical world and b there's only a certain number of colors that actually make sense but since some of the other attributes have a lot more options to them they end up being very unique potions every single time and that sort of mixed randomness applies to a lot of the other different generators that are there two sort of downsides that i found the first of all is that i realize that this is based on the Reddit thread or the Reddit subreddit. And a lot of this is just directly porting over the various tables. I think the site could benefit from somebody programming in a little bit of logic to some of the generators just to cut down on the number of completely contradictory or nonsensical results that can come up if you're using a generator that mixes a bunch of different rolling tables together like for example going back to the potions one the potions can end up with effects and side effects and sometimes an effect that's generated and then a side effect will completely contradict each other which you can argue that that might be valid, but to me, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, the other thing that I noticed is, particularly with the generator for settlements, 
where you mentioned that it can generate a small castle and it generates a number of rooms and a number of inhabitants. When you're dealing with a small castle where it's generating 2d6 rooms and 4d6 inhabitants, it can give you a nice amount of useful information. When you've got a large castle where there's 8d6 rooms and 16d6 inhabitants, the utility starts to break down a little bit because the tables that it's using to generate all the different rooms and all the different features start to repeat themselves a lot. So like I generated a castle, for example, that had eight chapels in it, right. which and then it was followed by six privies. So <laughs> I, I sort of generated less of a castle, more of a religious convention center, <laughs> which I mean, you can hit reroll and get a more suitable castle. But in addition, the inhabitants list is all fully fleshed out for each inhabitant. So you get more info than is than I think is really practical, particularly if you're trying to use this as a quick reference thing. But other than that, I, I like the way that it worked. Yeah, something like that would definitely be more of a, I'm trying to write a campaign, give me a base to work from, and right. then you'll likely go through and generate it. But yeah, like you were saying, the, the quick reference stuff is definitely sort of things like, you know, um, under objects, they've got bookshelf with 6d6 books on it, where... I've always had characters in my campaign where one of them has been a little bit nerdy and he's like, oh, what's what's in the bookshelf here? And I'm just like, uh, I don't know. Fifty Shades of Wyvern, maybe? <laughs> um, you know, trying to come up with something on the fly. Whereas this, you could just click that and then you've got a shelf that's full of 20 books and 99% of them are really boring and then you can always just tweak a few to make them what you want them to be. And for that, I found it really good at running in the middle of games. So I realized that this is pulling from tables that have already been created. So it's not necessarily the same as a random generator, even though it really does present itself that way. But I have to say, I am equally delighted and disappointed at how practical these roles are. <laughs> as most of our listeners should know by now, when I get to tables and generators like this my favorite things are always the silly stuff that can get generated and there's a lot less of that here so it's all really usable <laughs> yeah the worst thing about this site is that it's actually pretty good yeah i know that being said i did just roll a fiery and mad ancient red dragon who will find any excuse to argue but is also very lonely and only wants to find friends well there you go Again, perfectly usable. I think my favorite thing about this site, though, is the history. I've not seen that with any other table site like this. So you can click on the history and you can look at all of the previous roles that you've done, at least during this session. Yeah, it does keep a log of everything that you've done. So if, like us, you've been clicking around a million different things, trying them all out, you could literally scroll back to the very first one that you generated and look at what it was and then you can actually copy it to the clipboard and paste it in whatever you like or you can delete it if you don't like it or you can delete it if you don't like it that's also an option 
Well, links to auto roll tables, as we said, can be found in our show notes. But is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Have you found a cool app, book, or other item that you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? If so, let us know about it by emailing us sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, I have news. And what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. These last, uh, however long it's been since we did D&D news, the physical asset packs for the most recent D&D modules have gone down pretty well, with the Maps and Miscellany pack for Waterdeep Dragon Heist and Dungeon of the Mad Mage, and also the Descent into Avernus Dice and Miscellany packs being surprisingly good sellers. Wizards of the Coast have decided to branch out a little with the creation of a generic D&D Dice and Miscellany pack entitled Laurel Silverhand's Explorer's Kit. The Explorer's Kit contains 11 dice with the now standard 2d20s for advantage and disadvantage, complete with the D&D ampersand on the d20, and 4d6 for character creation. Much like the other packs, the packaging itself is also a felt-lined dice tray. Alongside the dice, you also get a lot of things to enhance your games set in the Forgotten Realms, such as a poster-sized map of the Sword Coast with Waterdeep on the reverse, and approximately 20 cards that contain good-looking art on one side and lore on the reverse. The cards are a mix of different locations, such as Neverwinter or Icewind Dale, factions such as the Zentarim, and famous NPCs like Xanathar or Laryl Silverhand herself. This set isn't tied to a specific product, and so is suitable for any games set within the Sword Coast region. If this sounds like the sort of set you'd like to acquire, you can pick up the Explorer's Kit from your friendly local gaming store or favourite online retailer priced at $29.99 United States dollars. So I don't know how they roll dice at Wizards of the Coast, but most of the things they've released that have an integrated dice tray would basically just be springboards for most of the ways that my players roll their dice. Because those <laughs> those sidewalls are not high enough. Yeah, well, I mean, at least the lid and the box itself come as two separate dice trays because the lid, yeah, I don't know how anybody's supposed to roll dice in that because like my dice would just fly out and i'm not a heavy roller but i've got one guy who he uses metal dice and i swear he's probably gone through the wall in my house twice so (laughs) yeah this would just not work at all i was about to suggest you get heavier dice and then you said that so yeah no that that just encouraged him to oh i can put my full weight into this roll kathwack um, yeah, force equals mass times acceleration. Increasing the mass does not help. No, yeah. no. Um, having said that, though, this is a cool set, though I do wonder who would actually use this. I, I mean, this is just probably where I don't have enough data on how many homebrew campaigns use the Forgotten Realms setting. I guess it could kind of be useful if you have some of the older modules, like Horde of the Dragon Queen, um, Rise of Tiamat, etc., which was, you know, from before they did these real integrated sets. But yeah, I'm not. I guess I just don't really know who the target market is for this. I just want to know why they chose Waterdeep to put on the other side of that map. Yeah, that's another decision that I'm not entirely sure of as well. So the Sword Coast on one side, that makes sense. Yeah. But Waterdeep just seems a bit odd well since we know it's not happening with the release this time it's still very possible i think that more adventures in the future will start in Waterdeep, 
because as we discussed before, we've got Waterdeep colon Dragon Heist, Waterdeep colon Dungeon of the Mad Mage. It's very possible there may be Waterdeep colon something else we haven't done yet. So it may be that the actual city of Waterdeep is going to get a lot more mileage in published adventures going forward. We just don't know about it. Either that or they're just really proud of the art that they got for the Waterdeep map and they're like, hey, we can't just put this in one book. We need to (laughs) spread it around as much as possible. Right. Although it does make me wonder, are we then actually going to see a second entry into the Baldur's Gate line of prefixed books? It's possible. I mean, as, as people have pointed out for a variety of different reasons, Wizards currently seems loath to leave the Sword Coast for any significant length of time in coming up with their published adventures, so I think Baldur's Gate could make another appearance as the main title for an adventure, the way that Waterdeep already seems to be. So the dice themselves are really pretty, and I honestly think they are much better looking than the 45th anniversary dice. And that being said, I can't help but wonder, since they are the same color scheme, if this is like Anniversary Set Take Two. Or like Anniversary Set The Discount Edition? Yeah. Well, I mean, we did see them advertising the Anniversary Set right up through Christmas, Mm -hmm. which, considering that there were only supposed to be about 2,000 of them, and given the sales figures for 5th Edition, that's a disappointingly low amount of sales. Yeah. Yeah. So this could definitely be an effort to recoup some costs as a reaction to what happened with the dice set. Speaking of the anniversary dice set, the Sapphire Dragon became available for purchase separately on D&D Beyond on January 6th, and with it came a bit of gem dragon lore. Now, before we dive in, we feel it's fair to say that we asked Ryu to do this write-up, and while it has been edited down, she unsurprisingly managed to write over 1,000 words on a single dragon. So you can't say that with this show, you don't get your money's worth. Anyway, back to the dragon and its lore. There are five gem dragon types, amethyst, crystal, emerald, sapphire, and topaz. A sixth type of gem dragon, obsidian, was also around in earlier D&D editions, but they're not mentioned in this publication. Only one ruby dragon exists, the deity of the gem dragons, and also the god of night, psionics, and secrets, Sardior. This is the first mention of both gem dragons and Sardior in 5th edition, but since Wizards' recent love affair with psionics, it should be no surprise that gem dragons are also naturally psionic, some of them even developing their psionic powers before they even hatch. Being of neutral alignment, they usually find themselves at odds with evil-aligned psionic creatures, such as Mind Flayers and Aboleths, and will go out of their way to attack such aberrations. Gems are also the most introverted of the dragon types, only interacting with each other to mate or protect an egg clutch. However, in spite of this, and most likely due to their psionic tendencies, they are also extremely charismatic, being both attentive hosts to guests, and being able to quench a brass dragon's thirst for conversation without even batting an eye. And now for the Sapphire Dragon itself. 
we're only given the stat block for the adult dragon, having an AC of 19, 207 hit points based on 18d12 plus 60, and a challenge rating of 15. These numbers are very similar to the adults of the chromatics and the metallics, but there are some very interesting differences in the sapphire's stat block compared to its non-gem cousins. First of all, it's immune to thunder damage, a unique immunity among the other draconic lines. It also has the spider climb ability, as well as the tunneler trait, which allows it to burrow through solid rock at half its burrow speed. After which it may choose, remember the psionic powers, to leave a 10 foot diameter tunnel behind. Also in line with these psionic powers, a sapphire's cave system may have no discernible entrance or exit. Now you may be wondering why spider climb? Well it just so happens that giant spiders are a sapphire dragon's favourite food, and they greatly enjoy hunting the large arachnids in their tunnels. Also being a tunneler, it is usually at odds with other tunneling races such as dwarves and drow, but will occasionally befriend deep or rock gnomes and enlist them to help guard its home. The dragon's debilitating breath deals 45 or 13d6 thunder damage and incapacitates any enemy who fails a DC 18 constitution saving throw, with half damage and no incapacitation on a successful save. It also has unique legendary actions. It does still have the tail attack, but where other dragons have the detect and wing attack abilities, the sapphire dragon instead has teleport, allowing it to warp to any space it can see within 30 feet, and telekinetic fling, where the dragon can telekinetically throw any object up to size small that isn't being worn or carried at a creature, causing it to make a DC 17 dexterity save, and then take 4d6 bludgeoning damage, or half as much if they happen to succeed on the save. It's also interesting to note that where chromatic and metallic dragons both get three uses of legendary resistance per day, the sapphire dragon only gets two. Similarly, chromatics and metallics get three attacks with their multi-attack along with using frightful presence, one bite, and two claw attacks. The sapphire dragon on the other hand, along with frightful presence, only gets one bite attack and one claw attack. Interestingly though, the damage of the sapphire's claw attack is higher than that of its non-gem cousins, dealing 3d8 plus 6 slashing damage instead of the normal 2d6 plus 6 slashing. A sapphire dragon's lair actions include charming a creature that fails a dc15 wisdom saving throw, shaping any 10 foot area of stone it can touch to whatever suits its purpose, and forming a 60 by 10 by 1 foot wall of solid stone within 120 feet of it. Each 5-foot section of the wall has an AC of 17, 20 hit points, vulnerability to thunder damage, but immunity to poison and psychic damage. As mentioned before, regional effects of a sapphire's lair draws giant spiders to it, as well as the creation of sapphire veins in the surrounding earth. A sapphire dragon is also able to use the clairvoyant spell on any stone surface in a 6-mile radius of its lair. The sapphire dragon is available now on D&D Beyond for $1.99. So I'm hoping that we're going to see more entries into the gemstone dragons. I did really like the adult sapphire dragon and what they've done with it. And it would also be nice to have more than just the adult. Yeah. Yeah. I've always liked the gem dragons. They're very interesting when compared to the regular chromatics and the metallics. Because they're, first of all, they're neutral and sort of loners. So you can get that reclusive hermit vibe going with them better than even some of the other dragons. And also just because their abilities are so far out of left field because they're based on psionics instead of on the more natural abilities that they get in other editions they've been 
really interesting to play with. You can even see it with this one because the regional effects are sort of contradictory as compared to the other dragons because a lot of the other dragons regional effects are things that sort of support it like a black dragon will start creating swamps and start attracting creatures that will serve it whereas mm -hmm. the sapphire dragon more sapphire veins show up which makes thematic sense but it doesn't really help the sapphire dragon at all. It doesn't particularly care if there's a bunch of sapphire around. And also it's attracting spiders, which are what it eats rather than things it's expecting to guard its lair or something like that. Well, I thought that was kind of interesting about the sapphire dragon though, because it doesn't really need the guarding. And if it does, it can befriend some gnomes. But, um, but instead it, Partially because of how good of a tunneler it is, and partially because of its psionics, it can completely hide its cave system, and it can change it at will, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, forget minotaurs. If you're stuck in a sapphire dragon's labyrinth, just, you know, fall on your sword and do the honorable thing. <laughs> yeah. You're not getting out of there. <laughs> no. I mean, the, the way that it described the tunnels being made i was um this is switching to sci-fi for a little bit so apologies but i was quite reminded of the uh tokra from stargate oh yeah how they would sort of build their uh underground bases out of um it was sort of like hexagonal things but it was uh you know you could substitute that for gemstones quite easily and how the tunnels yep. would sort of build themselves psionically and yeah i'm uh no i'm a fan of this i'm hoping they're gonna do more i was gonna say the damage sort of makes thematic sense too because the rest of the dragons, you know, if you stretch biology a little bit far, are still using bone-based claws. Whereas based on the structure of the gem dragons, they're using gem-based claws. So instead of, you know, calcium organics backing it, you've got solid pieces of what are essentially slightly less than diamonds being used to attack. I still do find it interesting that it only gets one claw attack instead of the normal two. I think that's probably because of the higher damage output, though. Possibly. Yeah, that, that gets into the math of how they determine challenge rating, which, I mean, your section was already three times as long as we expected, so I won't get <laughs> into that again, but... Um, yeah, that... I'm almost certain that was the reason. They wanted to make the attacks hit harder, but that meant if they wanted to keep it at a challenge rating on par with the other types of dragons, they had to drop the number of attacks it could do. And finally in our news roundup, Wizards of the Coast have announced their latest official sourcebook. Due for a release on the 17th of March is the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount. It's at this point people who aren't fans of Critical Role will ask, what's a Wildmount? Whilst fans of the show are probably checking that this isn't one of the Traveller's pranks. But rest assured, Critical Role is now an official Dungeons & Dragons setting. The announcement of this title has left some people on the internet with certain opinions as to what Wizards of the Coast should be spending their time on, rather than, in the words of several Twitter posts, pandering to Critical Role fans. However, this book is not just for the critters, and has been written to be relevant to everyone playing D&D. 
Much like Eberron or Ravnica are different settings, but their 5th edition releases make the setting accessible to those who don't know of them already, the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount does the same. Of course, if you're a fan of Critical Role, then you'll find many familiar elements, as well as a lot of lore and content only hinted at during the show. Speaking of the critters, we know the depths that some of you love the show, so want to prefix our reporting by saying that whilst the staff here do enjoy Critical Role and Campaign 2, we're not all caught up with the latest episodes, so please forgive any obvious oversights we make when reporting and discussing this. Alright, that being said, what exactly is the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount? In short, a brand new setting for D&D, laid out in what has now become the standard way for 5th edition sourcebooks. A lot of lore info for players and DMs alike, some additional subclass options, magic items and monsters, a few low-level adventures, and the Gazetteer section. The Wildmount book will cover a breakdown of the continent of Wildmount, one of three continents in the world of Exandria, from the original creation myths through to the modern period, including the Calamity, the war which saw the gods leave the prime material plane and where the powerful artifacts known as the Vestiges of Divergence originate. The book then talks about the four main regions of Wildmount, which is also where the adventures written in the book take place. The adventures are designed for both practice DMs and complete newcomers, and it's the new DMs that the book's designers, principally Matthew Mercer, want to really attract. Alongside the usual adventure breakdowns, read aloud text and various other bits you need to run the adventure, each one will be annotated with anecdotes on how to customize the adventure and what to do if your players go in an unexpected direction, allowing these adventures to be a very good introduction to DMing. Each adventure is designed to cover levels 1 to 3, and as mentioned, not only take place in the different regions of Wildmount, but also have different flavors of adventure. The Menagerie Coast is a collection of city-states on the southwestern coast, and as such, the adventure line here is centred all around the ocean and ships on the high seas. The western Wynandia region centres around the city of Hupperduke, along with the people and politics of the Dwindalian Empire, and this adventure is well suited to those that prefer a little more intrigue and urban adventuring. The Eastern Wynandia adventure ties directly into the war between the Kreen Dynasty and the Dwindalian Empire, where you're part of a military initiative that has an element to it going rogue. Finally, the Biting North region's adventure is centred around Isocross and the unknown mysteries of what secrets have been buried under the ice, along with all of the factions racing there to uncover lost artefacts and maybe even a vestige or two. Along the way, our heroes will face off against a variety of new monsters and NPCs, some that have already been featured in the shows, but also some entirely new creations, such as the Suavein Basilisk, a seafaring creature that secretes an oil that turns everything that the oil comes into contact with to stone. As with every new setting to D&D, there will also be a number of new mechanics presented in the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount. We mentioned before the Vestiges of Divergence, powerful artifacts from the time of the Calamity, originally forged by the gods or other near-deific mages for fighting in the war, which have been lost to time and now lie dormant. If a player were to find a vestige, it would be a powerful magic item in its own right, but the real magic here is in their ongoing use. Through strong character growth or periods of intense emotion, these vestiges will unlock their next stage, becoming even more powerful than they were before. Each vestige has three stages, Dormant, Awoken, and Exalted. The idea is that the players will want to keep each vestige through the life of their character should they acquire one, with the weapon growing in power alongside its user. Additionally, there will be a new way to generate your backstory and give it a real flavor of Wildmount in the form of the Heroic Chronicle, a generator made with the intention of using dice rolls to piece together your background, though of course you can always just pick your favorite options. Finally, the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount will introduce a new form of magic, Dunamancy. 
Matt Mercer summed up Dunamancy as esoteric space-time magic and is born out of his own love for quantum and astrophysics. Lore-wise, Dunamancy isn't a new school, but rather an offshoot of the arcane practiced in the Kryn dynasty, stemming from their worship of the god Luxon, through which they discovered beacons, artifacts of potentiality. Dunamancy works by tapping into the point at which alternate timelines and realities are created. For every choice someone makes, there are hundreds of different paths they could have taken, and this vibrating potential can be channeled and crafted into magic. In the lore, the existing spells Haste, Slow, Time Stop, and Reverse Gravity are all spells that fall under the Dunamancy category, and although they're available to everyone and not just those practicing Dunamancy, it's justified as well-practiced mages who accidentally tapped into the potential that Dunamis has, without realizing how deep the power goes. In addition to the aforementioned spells, a few examples have already been shown on Critical Role, such as Fortune's Favor, a second-level spell where the target gains a fragment of possibility that lasts for an hour. Mechanically, a Fragment of Possibility works similarly to a Luck Point or Inspiration, in that it allows the bearer to roll two d20s whenever a d20 roll would occur, and take the higher of the two. At higher levels, we'll see spells like Reality Break, where you can target a creature and effectively banish them for a round to another dimension, all determined through a die roll. When the creature returns, it will have effects, such as possibly being flung through the Far Realm and having extreme levels of pure insanity attacking them, or maybe they were flung so hard through dimensions that echoes of themselves from other timelines could break through, and may try and kill the target to take their place. Along with the new spells come three new subclasses based around Dunamancy. The Echo Knight, Chronogist, and Graviturgist. Echo Knights are elite warriors of the Kryn dynasty, and are martial classes that manipulate Dunamis to pull echoes of themselves from other timelines into this reality to fight alongside the Prime version. From there, the player can split the action economy amongst the Echoes or the Prime version, and can have the Echo and Prime instantly swap places along with many other possibilities. Chronergists are a time-focused wizard tradition that have abilities to not only affect the passage of time in small pockets on themselves, but on everyone around them, being able to freeze enemies or even freeze spells that can then be handed off to another character to be cast later. Chronergists are masters of time, and alongside Graviturgists are all about control on the battlefield. Speaking of, where chronogists deal with time, graviturgists deal with gravity, being able to alter the individual fields around creatures, causing distortions that can slow down or speed up the targets. They can also pull and push by way of gravity wells, allowing them to move creatures around the battlefield to put them either in harm's way or remove them from danger. They're also able to enhance their companions' attacks by adding an extra surge of gravitational pull to a warrior's sword swipe, causing extra damage, and at higher levels they're able to become a singularity of gravity, holding on to and crushing everyone around them. At the time of recording, there haven't been any official numbers or stats released for these subclasses, magic items, or indeed anything else we've mentioned, so we're not able to tell you exactly how all this compares to the established materials. However, as soon as we hear more, you can guarantee we'll be talking about it. If you want to pre-order yourself a copy, The Explorer's Guide to Wildmount releases on March 17th, priced at $49.99 US dollars, and is available from your friendly local gaming stores or favorite online retailers and also D&D Beyond for $29.99 US dollars. So before we get into the actual details of this, I do want to point out, during the predictions episode, I literally said, so, do you think we'll be seeing any official Critical Role stuff? And it was kind of like, eh, maybe, I don't know. Yes? Y yes, you can count this as a win. <laughs> yes! That's it, I'm um, now retiring. You guys can talk about this. I am done. All right, now, no, that's get back not in how here. it works. <laughs> oh. Um, 
Okay, so a couple of times we mentioned Dunamis in reference to some of the abilities that the subclasses are. Yes. And I don't remember that being defined as a term. So Dunamancy from the Critical Role show and again that prefix of i am not up to date on the latest episode so if other things have been released that turn this around anybody who's listening just bear with me um the the magic is derived from uh dunamis as this as the source of the magic which um as we mentioned in the body copy is where a reaction happens like you know do you decide to go left or go right there are a million different paths that could split off of there each one creating their own timeline and so dunamis is the like where all those timelines fracture and split and it's using the energy from that in order to cast spells so it's just kind of like where you got divine comes from the gods and arcane comes from your eldritch sugar daddy kind of then um dunamis comes from the quantum field of time okay so mercer just needed something to put in there because constantly mentioning mentioning quantum state potentiality didn't fit with fantasy got it uh, yes and no i mean um dunamis actually comes it's got a, a Greek base to the word, uh, which we get really? the word... Really? Because I looked and I couldn't find one. Yeah, well, we get the word dynamic from it. And it, it, it's that from... why. Yes, yes. I said it comes from, as in inspiration was taken and it's been obviously anglicized and put through the ringer and out the other side. Um, but that, that kind of core, that core concept of alterable reality... It's all from the same original place in terms of wording. But yes, yeah, so basically it's it's not chronomancy because you're not just dealing with time. It, it, it's dealing with potential as well. So it's it's the dynamic range of time. I still think it would have been cooler if they kept the Y, but yeah. as, it, as it is, it just looks like magic surrounding kind of mundane horses. <laughs> okay, yeah, I didn't see I that thinking... until you pointed it out, but... I was thinking deserts, but... Oh, like spice magic? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, honestly, for all we know, that might be the next tie-in with wizards, so (laughs) watch this space. Um, So yeah, other than than issues on the etymology of the word dunamancy, um, yeah, where do you want to start with this? Because there's a lot of stuff to cover. I can start in one place. One to three? Yeah. Like, that's... I, I don't get it. Like, I thought the concern and, um, I don't want to say backlash, but I thought there had been growing support for higher level adventures being made more official. Maybe that's just in my own D&D echo chamber, but levels one to three is practically a one shot. Right. I think what this actually is, though, is more the Wizards of the Coast formula for providing source books, which is you've got to have a little bit of subclasses, you've got to have a little bit of DM info, you've got to have a little bit of lore, you've got to have a little bit of gazetteer, and you've got to have a little bit of adventures in there. And I think it's really designed to fill the, well, if somebody picked up this source book and started from absolute zero they know how to dm they've got all the lore they need here's all the information about every town and let's start your players off with a real base adventure so that you can then build on it yourself and make your own adventures within this setting that's what i think the levels one to three are actually aimed at there 
which unlike the uh, Taldori campaign guide, which is the one that was released and published via Green Ronin for the first season of Critical Role, within there you still have each of the regions, but for every single uh, town, they don't provide so much as a full adventure like they're doing in this module, but what they have done is, here's a small, uh, and when I say small, I mean like, here's a two paragraph. Um, adventure for low levels, mid levels, and high levels, and then obviously they expect you to drop in the relevant creatures and to flesh it out of your own accord. But I can completely see how taking that approach would just not work for anybody who's a new DM. No. No, and that makes sense. I just... I don't know. I feel like if they're going to continually put out stuff that's aimed at beginners, at some point they have to do something for everybody else. Because... Nobody's a beginner forever. And I don't think we have any really high-level campaigns that are official. Dungeon of the Mad Mage is the only one that goes beyond, like, level 14. It doesn't go up to 20, though, does it? I think if you do Milestone, Hmm. it can get you to 20 if you do all of the levels in order. Yeah. So maybe, maybe the next release might have something in that vein. It's possible. So, magic items that grow with you. I like this. This is... Yeah. This is actually something that I feel like should already be in the base game. I'm I'm honestly surprised that it's not. But you see things like... Uh, there are many other examples outside of D&D of items that seem mundane that somehow get more powerful as you use them like the swords in Bleach, for example. And I just think it's brilliant to add that into D&D as well. I think there have been items like that in D&D in the past. I feel like they might have shied away from them due to the keep it simple sort of mandate that's pervaded 5th edition. Mm. Because it does require... Because all of the up grades for the items in an RPG have to have some sort of trigger, which means you have to keep track of something. And for the most part, 5th edition seems to have shied away from putting the onus of tracking many things on the player. So that may have been why they haven't shown up until now. But these, these vestiges are such an integral part of critical role that to not include them would probably be like, oh, I don't know, not including Sybaris dragon marks in Eberron. <laughs> I'm gonna leave that, that well alone. <laughs> yeah. um, so, going on to vestiges. <clears throat> uh, if I uh, so I've got the I've got the Taldori campaign guide, which is again the first season of Critical Role. Um, I, it's worth saying that this is unofficial material as in unofficial wizards material this is published by green ronin um so i cannot claim any balance or anything like that but just to give you guys an example uh, a legendary bow from there which is one of the vestiges called fenthrus um starts out as a plus one bonus to attack and damage rolls and allows you to do what they call an oracle shot allowing you to project your sight through the arrow that you fire for up to 10 minutes which uh is only once per short rest and then another ability of the base item is when a creature is killed by the arrow a six foot tree rapidly grows out of their corpse over the next minute 
Okay, so you know that's the base item. In its awakened state, you get all of that. The bonus to attack and damage increases to a plus two, and when you hit with that weapon, the target also takes one d4 lightning damage. And then when you also hit with an attack, you can declare it to be a bramble shot in which the target takes an additional 3d8 piercing damage, and in addition they must make a dc15 strength save or become restrained by suddenly sprouting brambles that immediately grow out of the arrow. Um, that that ability there, the bramble shot, you cannot use again until you finish a short or long rest. And then finally, when Fenthrus becomes exalted, the attack to bonus and damage goes up to a plus three, the lightning damage goes up to 1d6, and you can use the bramble shot twice and the DC increases to 17. So that's like a, a very short example of how these weapons are intended to awaken and grow over time, and probably the rough sort of scope that we could expect from them. I'm just currently in awe of an arrow flying for 10 minutes. No, the arrow doesn't fly for 10 <laughs> minutes. You can see through the arrow oh, for okay. 10 minutes. <laughs> But I mean, what's the point once it lands on something? Because then. Well, I mean, if you if you shoot it into the ceiling of a building and hope nobody notices for ten minutes, you've got a look but down camera. Do you have a look down camera, or is it all in the tip, and all you're seeing is the inside of the ceiling? <laughs> you can project your sight through the arrow. It doesn't say that there are eyes on the arrow, only in the tip. So okay, a little bit of you know <laughs> DM license there, I think. So my question, what are the triggers that move it from one state to the next? Well, the thing is, obviously, Critical Role, the show, is quite RP-heavy, and a lot of the fans are going to like the RP-heavy stuff. So the guidelines for when these should awaken do say, and bear with me because I know you're probably going to start sighing before I finish the entire thing, these triggering moments are entirely up to the DM to identify and enforce, and at many times manifest in ways that had not been expected. Uh, it then goes on to say, allow the organic narrative to um, allow you to feel when such an advancement should occur. For example, a character finally surmounts one of their greatest fears, or a character loses a close ally in battle and the anguish stirs the fury and the power within the vestige. It then, however, does go on to say, generally a vestige will remain dormant between levels 1 to 8, become awakened by early levels 9 to 15, and achieve exalted between levels 16 and 20. However, the exact moment of advancement lies within the preference of the DM and when the moment is most appropriate itself. <laughs> Listen, Mr. Mechanics, you've got to have something I for the RP crowd least, as well. At least no, they I... put some level restrictions on it, sort of. I know, it's just that the first thing that popped into my head is the power gamer at level 8 going, I'm afraid of heights and I'm on a building and I'm jumping off and hey, I didn't freak out, can this advance now? Can this advance now? Oh look, I climbed up this mountain, can I, can I advance the thing now? However, the moment of advancement ultimately lies within the preference of the DM. Right, no. but it says nothing. <laughs> Great, but after the 15th time of you having to say no to the player, it gets old. Um, I, I mean, I might have just scribbled this in pen in my book, but um, all the weapon explodes and can never be used again. There you go. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I, I do get where you're coming from. And obviously, like I said, this is the Taldori campaign guide, the season one. This is published by Green Ronin. This is just Matt Mercer's personal take on it all. 
working with Wizards of the Coast, I can see that they may get a little more specific on the rules because whilst this book does deal with a lot of just loose info, it just throws things at you for the DM to interpret, I can see that that actually isn't Wizards of the Coast's style. So whilst they may provide a box that says, you know, um, it should level up based on these roleplay moments, I can also see them putting not necessarily fixed values but certainly a lot tighter than what it's got there i don't know because there's a lot of stuff even in wizards official notices that are just like yeah this is something you could do but hey you do you man so i don't necessarily know that they would put more strictures around it i mean it's technically kind of the whole fifth edition that's like that yeah Right. And I mean, it's not the first time that we've basically seen roleplay stuff injected directly into the use of things, but they always provide a mechanical thing as well. So I'm thinking primarily of the Artificer and how they use their tools Mm. and what form they take. You know, there was some very clear RP instructions in the released material, but it does also include mechanical stuff for basically if you don't want to do that. So let's talk subclasses and dynamancy. So we've got the three different varieties. The... Uh, martial type, and then the one that deals with time, and also the one that deals with gravity. I'd like to start off first by objecting that Wizard really didn't need more subclasses. It's <laughs> already got like 30. Yeah. At the same time, though, I can see that it does make the most sense for the world. Oh no, it, def- for the world. it, definitely, like, makes, it definitely makes the most sense. It's, it's just one of those why must you pile on? Um, <laughs> and I, I think... Actually, in this case, I would say these are good additions. Some of the other ones that already exist could probably have been, like, not instantiated in the first place, so we aren't overloaded, <laughs> but right. like, I really don't think it needed nine subclasses when it was first started. But right. anyway, that's off topic. <laughs> Completely, yep. Um, well, actually, no, because... What I'm hearing is you're saying you actually prefer these versions. Well, they're different, um, right. which was mentioned in the in the video and to a certain extent in the stuff that has been talked about. I mean, one of the criticisms of Wizard and Sorcerer, but Wizard in particular, is that if you stick with just the original subclasses, from one to the other, there isn't a lot to differentiate a... Mm-hmm divination wizard from a transmutation wizard um like the extra abilities they get are very nuanced and really don't provide a lot of extra flavor even if you try to do it on a purely rp level because for the most part it only applies to the spells of the appropriate school right these based on i mean obviously we don't have the details yet but Based on what has been described so far, it sounds like these two different subclasses have a very obvious and very distinct flavor to them. Like, one of them is spontaneously creating black holes, while the other one is literally having conversations with himself from five minutes in the past. So... (laughs) I have to say that that particular one, the Echo Knight, I can't help but wonder, like... Are they actually pulling in shadows from the other timelines, or are they pulling in 
themselves from the other timelines because I can see those other timelines pulling them too. I think the intent is they're pulling in alternate versions of themselves. That's a trope that actually shows up a lot in science fiction in a yeah, bunch of different places. It does. So I can I would bet that's the intent is that the person reaches into the dunamis and pulls in like, okay, this is the me that is left-handed instead of right-handed, and this is the me that ran five feet that way instead of five feet this way, and we're all pretty much on the same page, so let's help each other out. Also, if it's an alternate version of yourself, there are some more roleplay elements in that too, like your party members not knowing which is which, and things like that of that nature. I see that as being a lot of fun too. Yeah, you could definitely have fun with that if you've got like a character or two who just harp on the whole, okay, which one are you? Prove it. <laughs> As aspect of that thing. Like, how do we know you're still the original one? I'm actually quite looking forward to uh, playing the chronogist class at some point, actually, um, because I have always liked the aspect of being able to control time in like a D&D setting. I've never actually gone as far as ever writing up a class myself. Even in games like Final Fantasy Tactics, the Time Mage was by far my favorite class. So, yeah, I'm I'm really liking the the Chronogist, Graviturgists. Yeah, they're okay. I mean, ultimately, you're just you're just crushing things with gravity. That's just force damage dialed up to eleven. But Chronogists, yeah. Well, I mean, the Graviturgists are spending half their time moving stuff forcibly around the battlefield. But they can also slow down and speed up targets. They're not just throwing stuff around. They're not just manipulating how heavy or light something is necessarily. Well, I mean, even in the slowing down and speeding up, that is effectively what they're doing. Yeah. Is they're either pushing something along or they're pulling it backwards. Whereas with Chronogist, you're not actually changing that. You're just saying how quickly things can advance. But I also do... I'm interested to see the mechanics of how the Chronogists can freeze spells and then give those spells to others to then actually cast later. I figure that's going to be something like the what the alchemists used yeah, to Yeah, like do. an infusion sort of thing. Yeah. An infusion like, I don't as expect was. That to be, yeah, I don't expect that to be anything amazingly revelatory. Yeah, me neither, but I am still... It, it piqued my interest, at least. Yeah. And if nothing else, it also means that if you are a DM who likes to construct their own things, you can basically pick these classes apart and turn individual components into magic items. So, mm -hmm. I do agree with you, though. Up until recently, there haven't been a lot of subclasses or classes that are strictly support-based in 5th yeah. edition, and that these classes seem to be, or the chronogist and the graviter just do seem to be filling that gap a bit. Well, I wanted to bring up that I really like the currently proposed cover art. That being said, I talked to my friend who is on the crit roll stats team and she told me that she hates it. So <laughs> uh, she said she just she didn't like how those two characters were depicted. Apparently they are yeah. rulers of different factions in Wildmount. Yes. And I thought, oh, I was going to say how much better it was than the last proposed cover art 
that ended up getting changed. <laughs> and then I, yeah. And then I just kind of was like, oh, okay, I'm just gonna keep that to myself now, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I do kind of agree with both of you. I do like this cover art. But I also believe that there are much better pictures out there. And one thing that Matthew Mercer said in the D&D Beyond videos was a lot of the art in this book is actually provided by the by the fans, by the community, by the critters. Yeah. Um, they took a load of art to Wizards and said, like, here, pick pieces from this. And I personally think that there are better representations out there than what they've got for the cover. So in this instance, I say that you're both right. I've already got the first campaign guide here. I really enjoyed it. I think Matt Mercer is an incredible world builder, um, even if you don't necessarily agree with a lot of the way that he presents mechanics and things like that. His actual method of building I find to be really interesting, so without a doubt I'm probably going to be picking this one up anyway. Now that we're caught up with the latest D&D news, let's take a short rest and dig up some unearthed mundana for an introduction to color theory to help with painting your miniatures. Are you sure life isn't a game? What is real? How do you define real? Uh, what's this, fine mantra? The Wi-Fi password. We're not savages. I'm sorry, you want me to what? To break me into the workshop. And these buckets of paint are for... Uh, it's actually gonna help you too. Oh no, you are not dragging me into whatever insanity this is. No, 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 look, look, look. I know that you're always complaining about how Rostro is kind of imposing and disturbing, so I thought just like a quick paint job. My issues with Rostro are not about how it looks. I, I mean, okay, that doesn't exactly help, but neither will painting sunflowers on it. Hey, guy. Oh, um, are we painting something? What? No. Uh, yes. Actually, yes. Um, miniatures. Uh, you do that, right? Oh, yeah, all the time. A very popular pastime, along with playing D&D, is creating a physical avatar for a player character or to represent the hordes of foes the player will face. While it is possible to purchase or make paper minis, a lot of people opt for fully three-dimensional representations. While pre-painted versions of those miniatures abound, many players and DMs alike enjoy creating custom painted miniatures. Several members of the Heroes Rise community and staff enjoy painting the miniatures, so we thought we'd pass along some general advice about getting started, along with some common pitfalls to avoid. Before we get started though, we do need to note that painting miniatures can be a bit pricey, so be sure to do your research and budgeting before diving in. First of all, you need to pick your paints. Most miniature painting is done with water-based acrylic paints. Those paints are available from a number of paint companies out there, but we recommend Reaper Paints, Army Painter, and Citadel Paints. Paints are generally sold by the ounce or by the milliliter if you're British, or, you know, not American, and come in a wide array of colors. Sometimes it's an overwhelming amount, so starting with simple base colors is a good way to start. Reaper has two Learn to Paint kits that run about $40 each and will get you several paints along with three minis, instructions, and brushes to get you started. Most other paint companies have similar starting sets with basic colors, a mini or two, and some brushes. Speaking of which, brushes are going to be your next most important purchase. Generally you will want to purchase sable brushes, though grabbing a few cheaper ones while determining if this is a hobby you want to get into could actually be worth it. Brands here are not as important as brush type, so when you're getting started just focus on getting one or two brushes to work on smaller minis. 
It's usually a good idea to have one brush with a wider tip so you can cover a lot of area with a colour, and then a second brush that comes to a finer point so you can work on the details. Before you begin, be sure to wash your miniature lightly with soap and water as it helps to remove any residue from the moulding process, which will allow the paints to stick better. Once you have all the necessary equipment, you now get to pick what colours will go where and actually paint the miniature. A few notes on that. First of all, yellows and oranges are probably the hardest colours to work with. For whatever reason, they require several coats or very thick coats to cover up the underlying base colour. We do not recommend using yellow or orange for your first attempt at painting. Second, it's usually a good idea to do one coat of a solid colour on the miniature to begin with. This helps with balancing colours and getting them to stay in the part of the model you want. Painting on pure plastic or metal can be tricky. Make sure to choose an appropriate base colour for the mini. If you want a mini that has a lighter colour scheme, you may want to rebase the miniature with a matte white spray paint found at your local hardware store. If you're going for a darker colour scheme, you may want to apply the same matte spray paint, only in a black or dark grey. When it comes to actual colours, there are some basic concepts from colour theory that will come into play. First are the types of colours. Cool colours, such as blues, greens, purples, and some greys, will contrast nicely with warm colours, such as reds, yellows, and oranges, along with a few browns. Neutral colours, such as most greys, beige, or tans, provide good border colours, allowing more sharp outlines or accents. Second are colour schemes, and while there are many colour schemes to choose from, there are three primary ones that are great to start out with. Monochromatic, analogous, and complementary. Monochromatic colour schemes are largely centred around shades of the same colour. For example, if you have a woodlands creature, a large number of browns, tans, and greys will help evoke that naturey feeling. Likewise, for a more aquatic creature, shades of blue help display their natural camouflage. Analogous colour schemes apply to one area of the colour wheel. Blues, purples, and greens are all fairly close, so they work well together. This often comes into play when you're dealing with sea creatures or swampy monsters. Trolls tend to be varying shades of green or blue with some grey, and Sahuagin are often portrayed as being mostly green, as are Lizardmen. Blue and purple are very common colours when portraying Mind Flayers. Finally, complementing colour schemes provide high contrast, sometimes very high contrast. Placing reds and blues next to each other will create strong contrasts, and at times can appear almost chaotic. These are great when you want a creature or character to really stand out or appear magical or unnatural. Most importantly when painting, and especially when learning, is to not worry about mistakes. It can take many, many layers before the details of a miniature become obscured, so any spillovers are easily fixed with some touch-up and very small brushes. Also, don't feel like you have to paint everything that's on a miniature. Many of them have levels of detail that will be beyond a beginner's skill level to paint. The good news is that it usually doesn't matter. These minis are probably going to be sitting on a table under standard household lighting. They'll still look great even if you only put one color on it rather than using four layers of shading. There are many, many guides available online or in physical form, ranging from free to paid classes if you find yourself interested in painting and want more assistance. Wizards of the Coast also stream a miniature painting series on their Twitch channel called Nozor's Marvelous Miniatures, and as mentioned, even some of the Heroes Rise staff are into it and will always give you tips and pointers on our Discord if you need them. However you choose to do it, we're sure your mini will look awesome. I will say though, you have way too much paint. I mean, it'll work, but dipping your brush into those full gallon cans is gonna get awkward. Yeah, I was just explaining to him how silly his idea was. But fine, I'll go put these away, traitor. Uh, problem? 
No, no, everything's fine. Except the time. Come on, the scrying pool awaits. What news from the north? Riders of Rohan! Message for you, sir. Well, it's been several weeks, but last time we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, did you miss out on sending in your predictions for Wizards activities next year? It's not too late. Tell us what books, goodies, or controversies Wizards will be providing next year. And have you ever DM'd or played in a game with younger children? What was your experience? Was it very different from an adult game? Do you have any advice for anyone about to introduce RPGs to children? Gath Member on Discord says, Little kids are a whole different ballgame than adults. They like a lot of the same things, dealing damage, beating the bad guy, and winning in general. However, keeping their interest is much harder. You have to stay with them, keeping them engaged, and avoid long droughts with no interaction. There's a reason most child-oriented material is short. That being said, their imaginations are wondrous and they can say the most hilarious things. If you've got a couple of little kids to entertain and teach them some make-believe and teamwork, D&D-like RPGs are definitely a good place to start. And Indigo Spectre on Discord says, I haven't organised a game for young children yet, but my daughter and I put on characters and voices in the car and carry on conversations as other people for fun. I hope to find a few of her friends to actually run a game for in the future. Carcer Floater Extraordinaire also wrote in on Discord to say, I DM for my children every week or so. I have an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old. When I started, we used a print-and-play system from Wizards of the Coast. It used magic, strength, and stealth as stats, and used a basic d20 for any attacks, just like 5th edition. The sets came in two dungeons, an elemental set and a creature set. It was also free, but I can't find a link right now. Now we play one-hour sessions of 5th edition, each have color-coded character sheets and their own dice that they picked up. I find that as long as you keep the gory bits out and keep everything full of energy, the kids love it. Also, as a dad, funny voices are always a win. In terms of this year, I still want to see a Dungeon Master's Guide 2.0, but I expect a Planescape book dealing with the Heavenly Plains as well as the other places. I also think we're going to get another creature book, like Tome of Foes, but dealing with ghosts, undead, and slime specifically. Either way, I am happy with what we have for now. We've got a plethora of books, adventures, and guides as it is. Active Nick on Discord says, January 1st was a special day for this proud nerdy dad. I introduced my kids to tabletop role-playing games. Since Dungeons & Dragons would be a bit too much for my six-year-old twins, I used the fun RPG you covered last week, Hero Kids. We played through the starter adventure, Basement of Rats, and they really loved it. My son playing a knight, which is more focused on defense slash tanking, while my daughter was playing a healer. I sold it to her as a special type of mage, like Queen Elsa, but she can heal and use magic attacks. She was sold. The adventure is supposed to be playable in 30 to 60 minutes, but we took over three hours plus a lunch break in between. It probably took longer since I provided a lot of intro, used voices to tell the initial story, had good discussions about problem solving, and such. I even printed a beautiful map of the village of Rivenshore taken from the Hero Kids blog, and they started speculating on which building was what. I was also teaching them to play cooperatively, reading abilities on their character sheets, helping each other, how to do movement during combat using a grid map, and understanding the various tactical positions like abilities limited by range. My son deliberately took hits to protect his sister, and my daughter preemptively healed her brother instead of attacking. My son even once said, Trini, if you hadn't healed me, I would have been knocked out. That's a term I love in Hero Kids. We don't talk about killing, we just knock out the rats and monsters. He continues on saying, One of the rooms was designed empty with a cave pond open to the DM to improvise. I put a treasure chest in the water guarded by a skeleton warrior. They learned to force open chests and got their first pieces of loot. These are common RPG fantasy tropes, but for my kids, it's all new. 
I loved how they felt the same sense of anticipation before they rolled the dice. They knew which number they had to hit, and they discovered the joy of a great roll and the despair of a miss. I've known that feeling all too well ever since I started playing D&D in 1984. I was amazed I was able to keep their attention on it for this long, but they just ate it up. I also encouraged them to act out their characters. At some point, they were giggling like crazy because Trinity used her healing touch ability to heal Sir Tristan the Knight on his butt during combat. I really went all out to ensure they loved their first adventure, and I even 3D printed some minis for a memorable experience, while playing the Elder Scrolls soundtrack in the background. As soon as we were done, after 3 plus hours, they immediately asked, can we play another adventure? I promised them that we would, but for now the bar has been set. It seems like I won't have any shortage of tabletop gaming in this house in the future. I'm a very proud and happy dad right now. Shiv Panicular Bellhop wrote in on Discord to say Hero Kids sounds similar to a Friends Free System polyhedral dungeon, and he provided a link that will be in the show notes. It might be more granular than Hero Kids, but the system is still pretty basic. I think I'll give it another try, but I really like how Hero Kids sounds as a system for younger players. Pretentious Latin name on Discord says, We've started our friend's nine-year-old son in on the D&D game I play in on Friday. This past week, he started rolling for monsters, and next session, he's going to get his first character to play. I believe, per the rules, he's a follower from Colville's book, and so won't have quite as many things to keep track of to make things an easier introduction. We're all really excited to drag him into our nerdy hobby. Also a great way to help younger kids learn to do addition in their heads, so it's really practically tutoring. And Fame the Minotaur wrote in on Discord to say, I've run the Lost Minds of Fandelver for a couple of sessions for nephews of mine aged 7 to 9. As one might expect, they favoured the combat portions. We have limited time on their visits, so we usually stick to pre-generated character sheets. We've also played through the Castle Ravenloft board game, which suited them better at the time. The younger ones moved more locally, so we might try again later. A certain baker friend from school recommended Stuffed Fables as a good introductory system. His six-year-old and four-year-old enjoyed it, so I'm considering using it as a bridging game for my nephews and maybe an intro for my four-year-old daughter. So lots of our listeners have had experience running RPGs for kids and by the look of it are all pretty positive. I do want to say that Active Nick had mentioned that the price that I quoted for the bundle was only for the holidays, but I bought that bundle well before the holidays. And also I just checked the website again and it's still $20 for all of it. So I just wanted to let everybody know that that I don't think that that was a sale that they were having at that time. Cool. And as we mentioned, the link to Polyhedral Dungeon, uh, which Shiv recommends, will also be in the show notes. So if you're a parent of little ones and you want to check that out, go to the show notes and follow the links. I also wanted to say that I have heard of Stuffed Fables and I've been wanting to get it for my kids as well, but the age range on it, I think it said for seven and older because portions of it could be a little scary for younger kids. So I was going to wait till my kids were older, but if you've already introduced it to a six-year-old and a four-year-old... I might as well introduce it to my five-year-olds. I did have a, a mini heart attack as I was reading that, though, and it's like, uh, we've also played through the Castle Ravenloft. I was like, what? They're seven and nine. <laughs> what are you doing? Board game. Oh, okay. Fine. <laughs> okay. Fame the Minotaur's nephews are not currently just sat in a corner rocking back and forth slowly, <laughs> muttering things about the vampire in the mist. Luckily. Although there are, I mean... I think I've heard most people say they've got at least one friend who started watching, like, R-rated horror movies at age 
eight because of, you know, various reasons like permissive babysitters or parents that weren't paying attention in late night <laughs> jaunts or something. Yeah. Yeah. As one of those kids who watched Friday the 13th when he was seven. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've been there. I've still got the emotional scars. And that brings us to this week's community questions. You've heard our thoughts on it, but what's your take? Is the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount going to be the breakout hit of 5th edition, or will it simply enjoy the moderate success of releases like Ravnica or Acquisitions Incorporated? And specifically on the subject of Dunamancy, is it about time that we had subclasses dedicated to bending the fundamental forces of the universe, or have Wizards of the Coast underestimated the gravity of the situation? And yes, I wrote that one just to make the puns. And finally, what about the smaller additions to Wizards collections? Are you planning on picking up the Explorers set? Will the Sapphire Dragon be sitting in your menagerie? Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 103rd entry into our chronicle. We'll be back with our 104th entry on January 22nd. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at heroesrisednd. You can email us, sendingstone, at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you. So take a moment and tell us your thoughts. Make sure you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com or by searching for us on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Stitcher. And if you like the sound of what we do, we're always looking for new adventures to join the party. And all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in our show notes. No matter your passion, scribing, dungeon mastering, or audio alchemy, we're sure to have a spot at our table for you. And don't forget you can help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from just $4 per month and get you access to raw recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, some Heroes Rise swag, and our new show Heroes Rise Distant Whispers, where we like to tackle some of the bigger topics of D&D. To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com forward slash Heroes Rise D&D. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience grow. And that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks for all your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our head scribe, Gath Menvar, our social media mage, Ray Ray, our web wizard, Mark, our dungeon master and adventurers league correspondent, Inigo Spectre, and our audio alchemists, Mikey, Branwin, and Timosthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Jadoric, Jonathan Hickman, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, and Randall Evans. Vince Fept for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vincefept.bandcamp.com. And Lo of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at RealLarryD and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. You can pick up the Explorer's Kit from your friendly... I was going to say the damage sort of makes the... Does it? How do you feel about that? Okay, anything further? I really like this dragon. 
and I really like this dragon. Is anyone else just ignoring Ryu at this point, or is it just me? Just I really like this dragon. <laughs> and finally, in our news roundup, Ryu really likes this dragon. <laughs> and finally, in our news wa- wound up, <laughs> one of us is. <laughs> I was going to say critical part of critical role, and I hey. did not allow myself to do that. <laughs> but you just uh, did. In the blooper reel. Paints are generally sold by the ounce or by the milliliter if you're, you know, sensible or British. <laughs> Not American. I would say that again because. Alrighty. Because. Um, uh, can I actually add something? <laughs> Sorry. Sure. Can I add something? Yeah. I mean, the audio is so hate you, but absolutely. Besides, you're a Kraken and I don't want to mess with you right now. Yeah. Did anybody unleash him? Did he unleash himself again? First are the types of colours. Cool colours, such as blues, greens, purples, and some greys, will always contrast nicely with warm colours, such as reds, yellows, and oranges, along with a few browns. I'm actually going to go back and say that. No, I'm not going to go back and say that. Ah, I'm going to go back and say it now because I've said I'm going to go back and say that. And that's just going to be really confusing for the audio alchemists and sorry, sorry patrons, but yeah. Okay, here we go. Beep, beep. <laughs> Many of them have levels of detail that will be beyond a big, be- nah. beyond a bit be- be- And that should be. Uh, so. Well, it's a good thing that I read the correct word. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be back with our 104th entry on, dis- nope, on January, <laughs> on January 22nd. Yeah, bad it's news, guys. You've D. got 12 months to wait until the next episode. Yeah. This part is actually wrong. <laughs> <laughs>